Good morning, everybody. Another beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> Let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day. And thank you for this gathering of your people. And thank you for your word. And Lord God, I pray that you will take your word and by your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts, minds, and wills so that we will be drawn closer to you. And um, as Ozzy talked in terms of our obedience, Lord God, you would show us how to be obedient with our money and our things based upon your word today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. <laughs> money. We all want it. We all need it. And we all wish we had more of it than we have. Money can do a lot of good. <clears throat> and yet, most of the time, we don't realize that, in fact, money is spiritual and can easily lead us away from the Lord. Now, Jesus said more about money than he said about anything else except the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, and then in verse 24, Jesus said this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But then he goes on to say in verses uh, 22 and 23, he makes this comment. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Well, why was he talking about the eye? Was he changing subjects? No, he was not changing subjects. What he's saying is that if you commit adultery or steal, you know what you are doing. But greed is the one sin that hides itself. It blinds us to itself. Now, none of us thinks that we are greedy. We all say, I'm not greedy, uh, and then we point to somebody, usually who has a lot more than we have, and we say, he's greedy. Uh, you see, we're blind to our own blindnesses. As I say, money is spiritual and can easily turn our heads, turn our desires, our values, and our priorities, and lead us away from the Lord. Now, this is a huge subject, and, and Paul speaks of it in detail in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, he begins talking about false teachers and the damage uh, that they can cause. But then, in the last part of chapter 6, verse 5, and continuing through verse 12, he introduces uh, and discusses the subject of the gospel and money. He begins 
In chapter 6, uh, uh, verse 5, uh, by talking about false teachers, and he says this of them. He says, They are men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But then he goes on to say this in chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. These verses are telling us that money is spiritual. It reveals the heart. Now we're going to see this as we consider four movements of this passage. Verse 5b describes those who epitomize the problem of materialism and the gospel. Then verses 6 through 8 give us the proper perspective of the gospel and money. Verses 9 and 10 then warn us of the danger we face. And verses 11 and 12 show us how we need to respond to that danger. So first, verse 5b, Paul says that those who epitomize the problem of materialism and the gospel are men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, Paul describes the false teachers as being uh, men of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth. This is important because it is so harsh. The Greek word translated depraved is a very strong term, meaning corrupt throughout, corrupt wholly, a pervert. It's the same type of word one would use for a sexual pervert. And deprived of the truth creates the picture of people who have no participation in the gospel whatsoever. They do not teach an altered gospel. What they teach is entirely different. Uh, so one of the things that we're seeing here is that one's attitude towards money directly affects the gospel. In short, money has profound spiritual implications. Now, the description of the false teachers as men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth is significant in that it leads directly to Paul's description of the motivation uh, that they have. They are in the religion business in order to make money. These false teachers are exemplified today by the teachers of the so-called prosperity gospel. Uh, specifically, those who claim that it is God's will 
that all Christians be materially rich and physically healthy. And they say that if you are not rich and are not healthy, it's because of your sin or because you don't have enough faith. Now, what you need to do is sow a seed of faith by giving money to them. And if we have enough faith, then God will pay you back a hundred times as much as the money you have sown. Now, the prosperity gospel attempts to baptize materialism and a secular world-centered message and turn it into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it is no sin to be rich and healthy instead of being poor and sick. It's no sin to work to improve your economic and physical well-being. However, it is wrong to distort the gospel. Prosperity teachers preach a different gospel. They try to use and manipulate God and God's word in order to satisfy their lust for money. The so-called prosperity gospel exploits the poor and it repeatedly and is consistently and harshly condemned in scripture. For example, uh, Jesus harshly condemned the Pharisees for their swearing on the gold in the temple in Matthew 23. He specifically accused them of robbery uh, and self-indulgence. He called them serpents and a brood of vipers and said that as a result of their sins, they would not escape the sentence of hell. And think about it. There is only one thing that ever drove Jesus to violent action. Namely, people who were committing financial abuse in the temple. Now, we may pat ourselves on the back and say, I don't follow people like Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn or Creflo Dollar or people like that, so I'm okay. But the rest of this passage in 1 Timothy 6 is a warning to us that is saying, don't be so sure of yourself. We are all subject to spiritual blindness when it comes to money. Therefore, we constantly need to be evaluating our own hearts, our values, our motivations, and our priorities. Now that leads us to verses 6 through 8, where Paul gives us the proper perspective on the gospel and money. Those verses say, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into this world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now, at the end of verse 5, Paul had harshly condemned teachers uh, who say that godliness is a means of gain. But now he says that godliness is a means of great gain. Um, Is he contradicting himself? No, he is not contradicting himself. In verse 6, he adds the word great to gain. That word indicates that Paul is making a distinction or is defining his terms carefully. In verse 5, the gain he was talking about 
was clearly money and material possessions. However, the great gain of verse 6 is the gospel itself and all that it entails. In other words, Christ himself, the forgiveness of all of our sins forever, a new life, eternal life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, adoption into God's family, access to the Father through Christ, hearts of stone that have been turned into hearts of flesh, and all the other attributes and benefits of our new lives in Christ and the fact that when Jesus comes again, we will each receive a glorious new body and live with him on a glorious new earth forever. If that is not great gain, then I don't know what is. Compared to all of that, all of the money and possessions in this world are nothing. Now Paul's argument in verses 6 and 8 demonstrates that the great gain he's referring to cannot be money and material possessions. What he's saying is this. When Jesus was on earth, he had something to eat and he had something to wear. He never owned a home. Remember, he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't even own a donkey. Remember, when he entered Jerusalem for the last time, he had to borrow somebody else's donkey. Uh, When the Pharisees asked him if we should pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus had to borrow someone else's coin. And when they killed him, the soldiers even took away from him the only thing that Jesus ever owned, namely the clothes he wore. Jesus died naked. Now, remember something about that. That's significant. When Jesus was crucified, he was a grown man in his 30s, and yet his own mother was there at the cross staring at his nakedness while he hung on the cross. In other words, Jesus kept nothing back for himself, even his shame. He gave everything on the cross in order to save us because that is what it took. Yet Jesus did not go around crying to the Father about how poor he was. In this passage, Paul is challenging us. What he is saying is this. If you have no more than Jesus had, in other words, all you have is something to eat and something to wear, which is all Jesus had, but you have Jesus, is he enough for you? Now, we all say, of course Jesus is enough for me. Really? (laughs) I don't think so. You see, we all have way more than merely something to eat and something to wear. We all have a home. Jesus never did. In that home are tables and chairs and TVs and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, We have cars. Jesus never had any of those things. Many of us are married and have kids. Jesus never had that. You see, we all have way more money and 
uh, material possessions than Jesus ever had. Yet with all of that, how many of us are satisfied, happy, and content? You see, this is not just a financial issue. This is a spiritual issue because money is spiritual. It raises and reveals the real condition of our heart. It reveals our values, our priorities, and thereby exposes who or what our true Lord really is. Now, in verse 7, Paul said, For we uh, have brought nothing into this world, so we can take nothing out of it either. His argument here is this. Since we come into the world with nothing, and we leave the world with nothing, therefore the significance of our lives cannot be based upon the amount of money and things that we're able to accumulate during the few years we are here on this earth. The fact that life does not end at the grave is the key to his argument. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the fact that life does not end at the grave. Now, Paul made essentially the same argument in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, where he said, If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Then it's all about how much stuff you can accumulate now. But his point is that if Jesus is not the Lord, if he has not risen from the dead, then we will not rise from the dead either. And if that's the case, then life is only about getting as much pleasure, money, and possessions for the few years that we exist here on this earth. Because after that, then there's nothing. However, Christ is the Lord. He has risen from the dead, and we will rise from the dead in him. Therefore, we must have an eternal view of these things. Now, what we do during our lives on this earth does matter for all eternity. In fact, what we do with our money and our possessions affects us spiritually now and in eternity. Money and material possessions are good and necessary things. However, any Christian who is motivated by money and material possessions is acting just like the false teachers who, uh, say that, and, and those who say that there is no resurrection. Now, this is a spiritual issue of the highest order. It is a matter of our character. And therefore, he warns us in verses 9 and 10. He says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now here, Paul is warning us very pointedly about the dangers of the love of money. Those warnings again prove that the great gain 
of godliness cannot possibly be money. In chapter 3, Paul told us that the love of money disqualifies a person from being a leader in the church. Now he is saying that the love of money can destroy one's faith. Now the word translated plunge in verse 9 is the same word used in Luke 5 verse 7 to describe the sinking of boats. And this echoes what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1 verse 19 about those like Hymenius and Alexander who did not remain faithful, but, as he said there, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, our attitude towards money and possessions is probably the best indicator of the true state of our heart. And that is why, again and again, Jesus warned about the dangers of the love of money. He said that you cannot serve two masters and said that what we treasure uh, here shows where our hearts truly are. Now the question is, are we really his disciples or is there a golden idol that has come between us and him? Now, although wealth itself can be a good thing, Paul is making clear that wealth carries with it increased spiritual risk. He is not implying that believers need to remain poor. Rather, he's pointing out that those who are content with what they have are happier than those who are never satisfied. Those who constantly crave more will fall prey to many sins. Now we see these warnings all over the Bible. In the parable of the sower and the seeds, uh, uh, Jesus warned that riches are deceitful and can choke the word of God in one's life. In Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul said that greed amounts to idolatry and warned that the wrath of God will come upon the greedy person. In 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, John said that the love of the Father is not in anyone who loves the world or the things of the world. Proverbs 11, verse 28, warns that the one who trusts in riches will fall. And the examples of Achan in Joshua 7, Gehazi in 2 Kings 5, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, the rich young ruler in Mark 10, and the rich man who neglected Lazarus in Luke 16, all point out the spiritual risks that having and desiring money may bring. So, the spiritual deadliness of the love of money is clear. And that brings us to how we should assess whether we have the love of money, and how to respond uh, to these dangers. And Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 and 12, where he says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, I'm sorry, that's uh, verse 10. Verse 11, he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, 
and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Uh, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now here, Paul is showing us how to respond to the dangers that money poses to us. The immediate context of these things from which Timothy and we are supposed to flee is the love of money, the desire to get rich, and all the vices that goes along with them. As mentioned earlier, the harm uh, of greed is especially dangerous because it is often so subtle and hidden. The lure of money is just like Potiphar's wife, whispering in our ear, lie with me. We must flee from it, just as Joseph fleed from Potiphar's wife, because money is a temptation that is as physically pleasurable as is illicit sex, but, is, but it is spiritually just as deadly. So how do we know if we have the love of money? Well, perhaps the best example uh, of what the love of money is is from that great classic movie Key Largo starring Humphrey Bogart and Edward G. Robinson. Now, Robinson played a gangster uh, named Johnny Rocco. Uh, and this is part of a conversation between Bogart and Rocco in front of Rocco's pals. Rocco. There's only one Johnny Rocco. Bogart. He knows what he wants. Don't you, Rocco? Rocco. Sure. Bogart. Tell him, Rocco. Rocco. Well, I, ah, uh, Bogart. He wants more. Don't you, Rocco? Rocco. Yeah, that's it. More. That's right. I want more. Now, the problem uh, with this is that all of us can say, I'm no Johnny Rocco. And that's just what we do. We take an obvious example like that and say, I'm not like that, so I must be okay. But Jesus pointed out in Matthew 6, as we saw at the beginning of this, we are all blind to our own blindnesses. To see clearly if we have the love of money and to flee from the love of money requires that we need to regularly assess ourselves and our financial situation. You see, the love of money, just as Johnny Rocco says, is not being content with what we have, but always wanting more. And when we get it, we're not satisfied with that. We want more again. That's why Paul talked about contentment, both in verse 6 and in verse 8. A symptom of the love of money is this. It has been said, if you have something that you can't give away, you don't own it. It owns you. Now, many of us tend to accumulate so many things over the years and can't seem to get rid of them. That is a spiritual matter. Money and possessions are spiritual and they reveal the real state of our heart. Now, if you're married, it is important for you to be very open with your spouse about money matters. If you're not married, having an accountability partner or an accountability group might be very helpful. 
I know that people do not like to talk about their money with other people. But remember, money is spiritual. So these are really spiritual matters we are talking about. Now, to know whether or not we have the love of money, we need to know what we are doing with our money. The numbers don't lie. How much are we spending? And on what? How much are we giving? And on what? And to whom? How much are we saving and investing? And where? We need to keep records. You know what the biggest difference between the rich and the poor is? It's not that the rich have a lot of money and the poor don't. The biggest difference is that the rich save first and spend what's left over. The poor spend first and save what's left over. The problem for the poor is there's never anything left over. They always spend as much or more than they get. And the other big difference between the rich and the poor is the rich keep records. They know what they are doing with their money. The poor do not. In fact, you probably should develop a budget if you do not already have one. Now here's an idea I heard from a well-known pastor uh, and when I'm in East Africa, I teach this regularly. Uh, the pastor and his wife, they're Christians, they went to church and so on, but when they got married, they did not have a budget. So what they decided to do was this, and this is what they recommend and what I'm recommending. They took about three or four months, and every dollar that they made, they made a note of it, put it in a big envelope. Every dollar that they spent or gave away, they either saved the receipt or they made a note of it and they put it in an envelope. And the reason they suggest three or four months is that our income and expenses can vary widely from week to week. But over three or four months, things tend to even out so you get a pretty good picture of what the year uh, is going to be like that will give you enough information so that you can establish a budget. Well, at the end of the three months, you need to get together with your spouse, open up the envelope, and add up the numbers. Now, the pastor said when they added up the numbers, they were amazed. They had no idea that they were spending so much in this area. They said, we could have cut that out entirely or cut way down and saved thousands of dollars. They also thought they'd been big givers uh, to their church but the numbers prove them wrong. And the reason was because they had not budgeted their giving. They did what most people do. In their church, when it was time for the offering, they, like most people, would reach in their pocket and see, hmm, I got a one, a five, and a 10. Which one of those three do you think most people put in the basket? The one, yes. Um, and so, you see, in church, uh, the key for budgeting is this, and it's not just in church, but the key to life is this. Uh, suppose you work for me, and I'm just gonna use round numbers here. Suppose you're making $5,000 a month. It doesn't matter, it might be three, it might be seven, but just for round numbers sake. You're working for me, you're making $5,000 a month. And I tell you, times have been very difficult. I'm gonna have to cut your wages by 20%. Now, you need the job. What are you going to do? Are you going to die? No, you're not. 
you're going to make the adjustments you need to live on 20% less. In other words, 4,000 a month instead of five. Now, the key to budgeting is to do that voluntarily in advance. What I mean is, you take 10% right off the top and budget it for giving. 10%, $500 per month, right off the top and put it into savings. And then you live on the remaining 80% or four. Um, and so uh, as you do this, you see, uh, you, know, you need to keep records to make the adjustments you need to make along the way. Um, and so as you do this, if, for example, you get a raise or a promotion, you don't raise your standard of living up to meet your new increased income. You can raise it up a little, but that means more for you to give and to save because you need to be looking for ways to cut your expenses so that you can live on 75% of your income or 70% and you can be giving more than 10%. You can be giving 15 or 20 or so on and so forth. I know a pastor uh, in, uh, in Kampala uh, who uh, budgeted and he's now giving 20% of his income. Uh, and he, he's looked for ways with his wife to cut expenses uh, and to get money. I, may, I don't recall if I used this example in an earlier sermon, but one of the things that he does with his wife, he had a, got this box, put it in the house, and when he and his wife come home, if they have just a spare coin, not a note, they put it in the box. Well, at the end of a year or so, they decided, let's open up, up the box, see how much we have. They had 60,000 Uganda shillings. It was like free money because it was just a spare coin, a nickel or a dime or a quarter. They, he never missed it. And they looked for ways to cut expenses. Um, he did what my wife did for me many years ago, got some barber clippers. He cuts his own hair and he cuts the hair of his sons. And so instead of spending 5,000 or whatever uh, Uganda shillings for a haircut, you know, it, the, the clippers paid for themselves the first time he used it. That, that was the same with mine. You know, I've, I've probably saved thousands of dollars over the last 15 or so years by cutting my own hair. Now, you may say it's obvious you cut your own hair, but, you know, I'd rather have the money, uh, you know. Uh, so that is the key to budgeting. You're in charge of your own finances. You are being intentional uh, so that you can have more for giving more for saving and investing. Because if you do this, using the round numbers I used, at the end of the month, you will have given, if you're making 5,000 a month, you're budgeting five for, 500 for giving, you'll have given an average of 500. At the end of a year, you will have given 6,000, 500 times 12. At the end of the year, you will have saved 6,000, 500 times 12. At the end of five years, you'll have saved 30,000. You'll have given 30,000. Uh, and, and so this is the key to getting on top of your finances. And again, if, if you're not in control of your finances, you're not in control of your life. Um, so the key here for giving is uh, our giving needs to be budgeted percentage giving. And it's important because ultimately that money is not ours, it's God's. He has simply lent it to us and will hold us accountable for what we do with it. 
The other thing we need to regularly do is regularly reassess our situation. Now, Nancy and I, we give to our church and a number of ministries we believe in. And every year we look at the list and we say such things as, should we increase or decrease the amount we're giving? Should we add someone to the list or take somebody off? Um, you see, we are going to account for our financial stewardship at the judgment. Remember the parable of the talents. One man got five talents, one got two, one got one. Now the master, that's Jesus, told him to manage the money while he was gone, and then he went away. When he returned, he had them account for what they did with his money. The first two, the guy who got five, the guy who got two, acted wisely and were commended. But the third one simply buried his talent and then returned it to the master when the master returned. Yet Christ condemned that one. But remember one thing about the man who got the one. The man who got the one talent was able to account for it, and yet he was condemned because he had not acted wisely with his master's money. And my question is, can we even account for what we are doing with our money, or I should say, with God's money? We cannot account for it if we don't have a budget and don't keep financial records. That's why we need to have a budget and keep financial records. Now, in verse 12, Paul not only says what we should run away from, namely the love of money, but he also tells us what we should run to, namely righteousness, godliness, um, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This tells us that we cannot have both. The prosperity teachers say, of course we can have the love of money and also be leaders in the church. Uh, Paul says, no, you cannot. You cannot have the love of money and also have righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You must choose. It's one or the other. You can't have both. Which again, reveals that money is spiritual because he is contrasting the love of money with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, all of which are spiritual attributes. And notice how righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness all go together. They're like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which also go together. These are matters of our character, which will determine how we live our lives. So is the love of money. Our attitude towards money is a matter of our character, which is why Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Our character will determine how we live our lives, and, uh, that, and at the heart of our character is our relationship with money. Now, in verse 12, Paul concludes by saying, fight the good fight of faith. Take 
hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is the second time in 1 Timothy that Paul has used the expression, fight the good fight. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 18. There he was telling uh, Timothy to remain faithful. Here he is saying the same thing. But the context here is resisting the love of money and instead pursuing a godly character. Here, Paul adds the words of faith to the good fight. It is the good fight of faith. This emphasizes that our faith, by its very nature, requires effort on our part. The struggle against against the lusts and temptations of the world and the flesh, of which money is a prime example, require effort on our part. In other words, our relationship with money implicates our faith. It does that because money is spiritual. We need to see it for what it is and act accordingly. Now, we act accordingly by fleeing from the love of money and pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. By doing that, as Paul says, we take hold of eternal life. Now, taking hold of eternal life implies grabbing it tightly and holding on to it. Now, there is certainly a past aspect of this. We take hold of eternal life when we repent of our sins and confess Christ as our Savior and Lord. However, there is a daily and ongoing aspect to taking hold of eternal life. In Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That means dying to ourself every day. Dying to the love of money every day. In other words, not letting the subtle lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the world, and the pride of life worm their way into our minds and blind us. It is a battle. It is a great battle. It is a spiritual battle of the highest order. Now, Jesus made clear that this is a spiritual battle of the highest order. In John 17, 3, He said, eternal life is this, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When the Bible uses the word know with respect to salvation, it means more than just know about God and Christ. Instead, the Bible often uses the word know in a deeply personal, intimate, and relational sense. To know God and Christ is to be in the right relationship with them. Being in the right relationship with God and Christ means, among other things, that what we are doing with our money is honoring and glorifying them. So again, money is spiritual. What we do with it reflects our relationship with Christ himself. So let me conclude by saying this. In today's passage, 
Paul has given us a fairly comprehensive look at the relationship between the gospel and money. He has described those who epitomize the problem of materialism and the gospel. He gave us the proper perspective on the gospel and money. He has warned us of the danger that money poses to us. And he has shown us how we need to respond to that danger. We've seen that money is spiritual. And because money is spiritual, it reveals the true state of our heart. Now, we have the potential to honor and glorify God through our finances and also do a great deal of good in this world. If we take these things to heart, we may need to make some changes in how we manage our money. We need to budget, keep records, and adjust our spending and giving to truly honor the Lord with our money. Let us start being faithful stewards of our money. If we do these things, we will be like the first two stewards in the parable of the talents. In that case, on the day of judgment, we also will hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Now I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in to the joy of your master. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word, for being clear and pointed about this most important issue of money. Because, Lord, we are physical people in a physical world. We all have money. We all need money. And money can do a lot of good. But you've exposed the fact that it poses a great spiritual danger to us. Help us to remember money is spiritual and it reflects the true condition of our heart. Lord God, if any of us need to make changes in what we are doing with it, by your spirit, I pray that you will work on their hearts, minds, and wills and their finances to make those changes so that, Lord God, every one of us will truly honor you and glorify you with our money and possessions. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.